Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. The Capuchin Friars thought they knew something about the dead. After all, their holy order was entrusted with caring for the sick and dying in their community of Palmero, Italy. They had been at it for decades and were considered resident experts on postmortem care. But when it came to their own dead, it turned out that nothing would go according to plan. In 1534, when they relocated from far off Albicina, they immediately got to work constructing a collective below-ground cistern-like crypt. This particular monastic order practiced a tradition called the Second Burial. When a person died, they would be allowed to decompose, unburied, for some time. That was the first burial. When a friar died, his body would be laid on a shelf to drip dry, draining himself of all of his liquid. Then, once the soft bits, like flesh and other tissues, were gone, the dried bones would be taken and installed within the holy walls of the order's church. That's the second burial. So as the years went on, the friars stashed more and more of their own bodies in their crypt, waiting for the day the space would hit max capacity. The brothers planned to eventually go collect the bones for phase two, where they'd be brought up into the church. In October of 1599, some friars descended down into the belly of their crypt, here, they found something that had been whispered about over the years. These bodies hadn't fully decomposed at all. In fact, it seems that their decomposition had simply been arrested. How could this be? Instead of finding skeletons, they recognized their friends. It seemed that God had intervened on their plan for the dead. They took it all in to decide what it could mean. They closely inspected all of the 45 bodies meticulously preserved before them, and the Capuchin friars believed they were witnessing a miracle. They interpreted this moment as an act of divine intervention, so the friars decided to put the bodies on display as holy relics. 
They hoisted them from below and installed them around the church with wire and placards, up behind the high altar and in nooks all around the walls. And in all of this, they continued on with their day-to-day lives. They kept caring for the sick and caring for the dead. They continued to fill their underground crypt with the bodies of their newly passed members. And they noticed that these bodies too were not decomposing. It was determined that they would get the same treatment as the others. The friars got into the practice of installing the dead in their final resting, or maybe standing, place. Over the years, the order built additional rooms for these bodies. They added multiple corridors for their ever-expanding collection of mummies. What we know now is that Palermo has an excellent environment for mummification. The air is dry, and the humidity is low. The Capuchins' underground crypts, which often utilize the natural-made caves, were made of limestone, which harbors incredible drying properties. Over the years, the friars began taking a more active role in the miracle-making that is preservation. They began to work with the addition of vinegar, lime, chalk, and arsenic, which they found to aid in the process. Now, at first, these catacombs were an exclusive club for the resident friars. But who doesn't want to rub elbows with the divine, right? Taking money in exchange for holy services is historically fraught, but these catacombs needed to be maintained, and the way that could be done was through donation. So in time, the catacombs opened up to everyone, mostly to those who could pay for the privilege of being in proximity to something seemingly miraculous. Today, the Capuchin catacombs are the final resting place of 8,000 well-dressed corpses, and for about five bucks, you can go see them. While it might seem like a macabre spectacle to some, to others, it's a comfort and an honor to be in the physical midst of so many who have passed through this life before. So often, the dead are hidden from us. In the not-so-recent past, folks in the Western world tended to their dead at home and buried them close by. Life was experienced by all, from the cradle to the grave, until a radical shift happened. For thousands of years, across time and place, we have been tending to and preserving our dead. Because when our attempts at healing the body fail, humans have to turn to the next task, figuring out exactly what to do with that body. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Bedside Manners. When the opportunity to heal a body has passed us by, there is still healing to be sought, for the living, that is. For those who love the deceased, it can be a great comfort to know that they've handled their loved ones with as much care as they can muster, and that they are giving them a proper send-off. Throughout the centuries, humans have derived rituals for death and the remains of their dead, and among the many practices, there's one that shows up time and time again. Embalming. We can trace our earliest examples of embalming back to about 5,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. It's possible that the first mummies had no human intervention, but were accidentally cured by the hot, dry climate in shallow, sandy graves. Around 2600 BC, though, it seems that mummification became more intentional. While we can't know exactly how the first methods of mummification came to be, we can infer that early embalmers borrowed techniques from the preservation of animal meat. Over the years, different technologies and methods came into use, but what remained true over the course of centuries was that these embalmers played a revered role in the fabric of their communities. This act of preservation was to ensure the dead would make it into the afterlife, intact and with everything they needed to carry on on the next plane. Around 500 BC, 
How you chose to be embalmed in ancient Egypt boiled down to a three-tier service model. Your selections of a basic, deluxe, or premium package all depended on your sensibilities and your savings. To illustrate which package you were purchasing, embalmers would show shoppers three wooden models of corpses, all distinct from one another. Each was illustrated with various incisions included, or not included, in the purchase, as well as a list of other luxe add-ons. At the bottom tier, the body got a washing, a salting, and perhaps an injection of cedar oil. At the top, the body would be anointed with an array of delicious-smelling powders and oils, with organs fully removed, save for the heart, of course. Embalming became a means of one final capture of life in a corpse. It helped to sand down the rough edges between life and death for survivors. The ritual has become part of our customary response to death ever since. Eventually, the expansion of Christianity would create waves in regards to burial customs of the world. As our concept of afterlife changed, so too did the means required to get there. Embalming fell out of fashion, just for a while. By the Middle Ages, embalming again gained favor, being seen as a practical solution to some earthly problems. The pendulum began to swing back. At this time, it was often reserved for high-ranking military men killed in action who needed to be sent home with some semblance of recognizability. But with the 16th and 17th centuries rising interest in anatomy and all of the lessons it had to teach us, more bodies were needed for dissection practice. Anatomists toyed with different recipes and embalming techniques, in the same way that the alchemists, our proto-chemists that we met earlier in this season, worked in their labs cooking up solutions both physical and metaphorical in nature. Practitioners used all kinds of things, and honestly, they're things that you'd probably think would make some nice-smelling potpourri out of. Rose and chamomile and cedar in various combinations and forms, and sometimes turpentine and lime and ash and wax and alcohol. Through the years, they developed different techniques for preservation. Washing and drying, submerging, extracting organs and draining blood, pumping a deflated body up with linen or straw, and adding pigments for a living likeness. These recipes were sometimes proprietary trade secrets, and there was a competition among embalmers as to who could make the most beautiful corpses. Speaking of, there was one such corpse whose afterlife outlasted her mortal life that I'd like to tell you about today, and that was a woman named Mary von Butchel, who died on January 14th of 1775. She had been married to a man named Martin, a bizarre yet wildly successful dentist in London. He traveled on a painted horse, wore flamboyant outfits, and somehow managed to offend the general populace. Even still, his patients loved him and kept his practice afloat for over 20 years. He had been a pupil of John Hunter, remember him, who along with his brother William became two of the most revered anatomists of their age. With this particular training, Martin had an idea. He would have her embalmed and then place her in his dental office window for all to see. This was for advertising, of course. But madman's Don Draper, he was not, so he called up his old friend, William Hunter, to execute his idea. Now, scholars still debate why he did this. One doesn't often use the body of their deceased spouse to inspire public affection. One idea was that this was a final jab to get back at her for some transgression in life. On the contrary, some believe that this was a gesture of great care and affection, having called upon one of the most esteemed anatomists in the world to help him. So, alongside William... Martin embalmed Mary. It was a deeply intimate act, one that required much time and attention to care for and preserve her remains. They opened her up for autopsy and inspected her organs for telltale signs of what had gone wrong. From there, 
they began the first of a three-stage embalming process. First, they injected her arteries with a mixture of turpentine and vermilion and let it set. This would eventually help them drain her blood, which came in the second step, along with the removal of her organs. The third step found them washing her body with water and alcohol before filling her cavities with a mixture of camphor, niter, and resin. She was then stitched up with care, washed, dried, and anointed with oils. She was then laid in a box, her body set in quick-drying plaster, ready for the curious eyes of the general public. Word circulated quickly, as you might imagine, and people wanted to see Mary's mummy. Exactly, it seems, what he set out to do. He took a blurb in the local paper imploring people to come only at certain times, which, of course, the cynic might say was just another way to stir up interest. It also seems that Mary's body long found a post-mortem home in the house they shared, even after he remarried. When Martin died in 1814, the Board of Curators of the Royal College of Surgeons received a letter from his son. Martin was interred in the ground, but there was no final rest for Mary. Her embalmed remains had been in Martin's care while he was alive. Now his son wanted to know, did the Royal College have any interest in putting Mary's body on display? They sure did. So there she was, Mary. Once an attraction in her own home, was now accessible to the greater public in the curio room at the college, where she stayed for over 130 years. His body arrived at the train platform in the middle of the night, passing from one set of strangers' hands to the next. At about 11 p.m. on Saturday night, December 17th of 1859, the now-dead John E. Cook arrived in Jersey City via the express train north, he was received by his brother-in-law and a local undertaker, just another stop on the journey home. It was late, or early if that's how we're counting, by the time the group arrived in New York City. The night sky had broken open and let loose torrents of rain, soaking our faithful chaperones to the bone. They were able to catch an express wagon, though, and John was loaded in. His final destination was a secret one, and traveling in the dark helped them keep it this way. Their schedule was something of a formality, but it also was a pure function of the situation. John had recently been executed in Virginia for treason, and his body had to move swifter than the decay that threatened to overtake him. Curious folks who managed to find out where John had ended up were turned away when they called, but his young wife pleaded to be the first to see his remains when they arrived. The undertaker promised her that this would happen, but changed his mind once he saw just how badly decomposed John appeared. Dr. Thomas Holmes, one of New York's coroners and most skilled embalmers, got to work on the body that lay before him. He got the arterial injection site prepared and started, taking about 45 minutes to get the four quarts of liquid passed through the body. But the newspapers noted that, in about half the time, Cook's face began to regain its natural color. The next morning, it said that he didn't even smell. John E. Cook, the flamboyant co-conspirator of John Brown and his rebellion at Harper's Ferry, was held the following Tuesday at the personal residence of the city clerk. The political nature of John's death and the criminal stigma around his hanging kept local churches from opening their doors to him and his loved ones. Only a handful of people were allowed to see the body, and the crowd control at the actual funeral limited attendees to a guided single-file line. After the last visitor was led out through the basement of the home, John's remains were taken to Cypress Hill Cemetery. A reverend gave a short address before John was put into the grave. After all of this was put to rest, the good Dr. Holmes dusted his hands and cleaned up his embalming lab. 
He knew that the tides of how Americans writ large were caring for the dead were changing, but little did he know that the treatment of John E. Cook's body would be the telltale canary in the coal mine. Holmes was an anatomist and surgeon by trade, and was deeply unsettled by the preservation of specimens, and by specimens I mean corpses, that he saw come through his lab. He was also well aware of the significant toxicity of the chemicals his fellow practitioners had gotten into the habit of using over the past few years. In the hopes of stopping the spread of diseases harbored in the corpses, they had treated them with arsenic and mercury-based compounds. Holmes had experienced studying Egyptian mummies, though, and he believed that there were other and less deadly ways forward. For the most part, up until this point, the work of death wasn't handled by professionals. The work was largely a labor of the domestic space, and the most intimate tasks of caring for the dead were carried out by women. But by the mid-1800s, America was on its way to creating a systemized market for newly minted death specialists. These tasks of caring for the dead were beginning to be outsourced to paid strangers, consolidated into industries, and given the shiny new veneer of professionalism. And Dr. Holmes was part of this movement, having gained notoriety for developing a safe embalming fluid. It was sold not just to his fellow anatomists, but to the burgeoning class of undertakers who were popping up all over the country. Even still, the larger public often found it horrifying. That was until the outbreak of the Civil War. Dr. Holmes had the great distinction of embalming Elmer E. Ellsworth in 1861, a Union Army colonel. In life, he had been close with President Lincoln. When the doctor heard this, he visited the president and offered to embalm his friend. Newspaper accounts praised the doctor's methods, extolling this idea that men who were killed far from home could be embalmed locally and preserved enough to make it home for a proper burial. Thousands came to see Elmer lying in his coffin, and all who looked upon his face were said to be taken by how utterly lifelike he remained. A short time later, the Army Medical Corps decided that they would employ the doctor's services to embalm all of the Union's dead. It was a symptom of wishful thinking, though, because they thought that the war would soon be over and the number of casualties low. They had no idea the carnage they were about to see and the undertaking that they were about to embark upon. As America's Civil War exploded through small towns, into the forests, and onto the open fields, Dr. Holmes and his colleagues embalmed thousands of bodies. The practice established itself in the midst of this horrific mass casualty, which amounted to a bloodier conflict than any they'd ever experienced before. For the first time in American history, scores of people were dying far from where they were born. According to one statistic, just in the South, one in five Southern men died during this conflict. Everyone seemed to know someone or some ones, and try as we might, the psychic toll incurred is unlike anything we've seen in our own lifetimes. The practice of embalming, then, became both practical and sentimental. It gave grieving families one last chance to look upon their loved ones, even if sometimes they were hardly recognizable. And while it's true that some embalmers were motivated by care and compassion for their fallen countrymen, the others were motivated by the hustle and the profit to be made off the dead. Even in the midst of tragedy, or as so often happens because of it, the opportunists had arrived. It's said that those who had taken up the embalming trade following the outbreak of the war stalked the Union and Confederate armies around the country, staking out battlefields and recruiting prospective clients while they were still living, with a generous offer of prepaid embalming coverage and transportation plans. These men were hawking their wares in showman style and with only a hint of sensitivity. You can only imagine what that did to the morale of the troops on the front line. 
Some embalmers, too, were charged with more or less holding bodies of the dead hostage until their families could pay what amounted to a ransom. The craft was wildly unregulated, but in years to come, it would be codified and organized with laws and degrees as a mechanism of control. In all, around 40,000 were embalmed and sent home. It was a practice that seemed ghastly to so many in the years leading up to the war. But like many things that war might change, our collective attitude towards death and how to manage the care of it became one of them. President Abraham Lincoln, who had been at the country's helm for this entire conflict, died on April 15th of 1865 after being shot at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. by a Confederate sympathizer. His body was quickly moved to the local embalming firm of Brown and Alexander, who just three years before had embalmed the president's young son. It was collectively decided by the powers in Washington that the president was going to be sent on one last tour. He had belonged to the people in life, and he would belong to them still in death. Lincoln had commissioned a stately presidential rail car, and it would now serve as his nine-car funeral train, spending 20 days and 1,700 miles crossing the country from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois. And at stops along the way, his black bedecked train was met by thousands of mourners who wished to see the president one last time. He was accompanied by loved ones and over 150 attendants, including a resident embalmer. The latter worked alongside local undertakers to ensure that the president was looking as fresh as possible, even as Lincoln's face began to sink and discolor in the heat. The conductor of the train was quoted as saying that he looked as if he were asleep in pleasant dreams. And like I said before, this concept of embalming the dead like this was something that people had to get used to. But any disgust, discomfort, or unease experienced firsthand by these curious onlookers was far surpassed by Lincoln's body as a symbol. They witnessed that his embalming gave him a chance to still be among them, if only for a little while longer. And in doing so, he helped to cement the powers of human preservation in the public's imagination. Within a few short years, the practice changed how the country would go on to live with death. Lincoln himself gave the practice his stamp of approval when he said that it helped to bind the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan. They saw that this new technology, readily available to everyone from foot soldiers to presidents, as a balm to ease the ache of broken hearts. It was a panacea, a form of care in the shape of pickling chemicals, one last act of caring on the part of an embalmer and, by extension, a family, before someone was laid down for good. In the wake of the Civil War, the nation began to rebuild itself. Life in the fractured country would never return to how it had once been, but a new normal would establish itself day by day. As the living returned home, the need for embalmers and their services began to subside. People could now die from where they came and be summarily returned to the ground. Not to be dissuaded by a good thing they had going on, though, a group of professionals mobilized as a collective, staking their claim as the new mediators between the living and the dead. America's thriving, booming free market had created a place for them, and they were going to claim it. The cottage industries around death care had cropped up during the war, saw a permanent and necessary place for themselves, and started creating barriers for entry, such as certifications and training programs that turned dying from something utterly domestic into a cog in capitalism's machine. Embalming, it seems, was here to stay. But the same can't be said for our faithful Dr. Holmes. 
You see, in the later years of the 19th century, Dr. Holmes would be arrested for keeping a body on his property for more than two months. He was studying the effects of his preservation not just on this corpse, but on others in his sprawling anatomical collection. He was summarily released on the grounds of no wrongdoings, but it's easy to think that some may have been unsettled by his experiments. For years, he kept an embalmed dog in the front window of his shop. At another point, he announced that in the future, marble would no longer be necessary to create sculptures from, but that he had found the exact chemical cocktail that would help turn formerly living human beings into marble for display. Today, arterial embalming is commonplace in the Western world, and there are many misconceptions around it. One does not have to be embalmed in order to be buried. There are no laws that require it. Jewish and Muslim religious traditions also continue to consider embalming taboo, since it pollutes the body's natural state. According to one study, there are over 800,000 gallons of formaldehyde running through the veins of the dead that are buried in the ground each year. The environmental costs alone are high, never mind the other mechanisms of the funeral industry complex that have people making financial, environmental, and spiritual calculations for their loved ones' final days. Dr. Holmes died on Monday, January 8th of 1900. The byline of the newspaper called him eccentric, but admitted that his creations were undeniably valuable to mankind. His final wish, according to the Brooklyn Times Union, was not to be embalmed. I'll be the first to admit that death can be a really hard thing to talk about, and it's so interesting to think that our relationship with it has changed so much over the past 150 years. It makes me think a lot about not just where we come from, but where we're going. If you stick around through this brief sponsor break, my teammate Robin Miniter will tell you a story about one man and his ideas about exactly that. Oh, and seeing as this is the final episode of Grim and Mal Presents Season 3, we thought you'd enjoy a sneak peek at Season 4. So be sure to stick around after the epilogue story for an exclusive listen to the new trailer ahead of the general public. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity Presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when it was that humans decided that living forever might be possible. Stories about immortality are seen in the foundational myths, legends, and religions across the world. We see gods speaking of eternal life, legendary characters who experience suspended animation, and we found ourselves in the never-ending search for the fountain of youth. More recently, even America's own Ben Franklin believed that if only his body could be preserved in a vat of wine upon his death, he might have a shot at being reanimated in just a few more hundred years. In the summer of 1931, a young boy in Detroit, Michigan by the name of Robert Edinger was flipping through his favorite science fiction magazine. He came across a story about a scientist who engineered a way to preserve his body after he died. The scientist decided that, upon his death, he'd have his body put into a capsule and launched into space. His plan was to be plucked from orbit in about 40 million more years, where his brain would then be transplanted into a mechanical body back here on Earth. Robert was utterly taken by this idea, and he never forgot it. Years later, he came home battered from the Second World War, and then used his GI Bill to earn a master's degree in math and physics. He continued to read and write the same science fiction stories that he loved so much as a little boy, and decided that he might be the one to make all of it come to life. In 1964, Robert published what he claimed to be the first solution to death. His magnum opus, The Prospect of Immortality, spoke with conviction about the possibility of long-term preservation and future reanimation. He believed that death wasn't a single event, but it was actually broken up into a set of stages that could be paused and reversed with the right technology. And it just so happened that this tech didn't exist yet, but he wanted to be the one to find it. What's important to note here is that while some wanted to brush Robert off, there were so many others who wanted to believe him. They were living in the space age, after all, and the churn of new technology and how it could change lives just seemed limitless. His book sold over 100,000 copies, and he started appearing on television, the radio, and in magazines. Central to his argument was the idea that both metabolism and decay could be suspended, just as long as the body was kept sufficiently chilled. He wanted to essentially press pause on what he saw as the liminal space between life and death something of a scientific, technology-infused deep hibernation period for each and every cell. 
With this in mind, Robert cut the ribbon for his Cryonics Institute in 1976. It was a 7,000 square foot warehouse in a very average looking industrial park outside of Detroit. And to this day, anyone still can become a member. Today, it costs $1,250 to join with the additional ask of $28,000 to be paid upon a member's death. One way to bankroll this investment would be, as they suggest, to make the Institute a beneficiary of a life insurance policy. Included in this price is also another very interesting offering. With a network of mortuary relationships, the Cryonics Institute can often deploy specially trained death care workers at a moment's notice to prepare and transport a body for its deep freeze. In 1977, Robert's mother was deanimated and put into storage. Since then, Robert's first and second wives have also been preserved. To do this, first, the blood was drained from their bodies. Next, they were pumped full of antifreeze. And for the third and last step, they were put into a vat of liquid nitrogen all in the anticipation of what science might be able to do for them in just a few more hundred years. And not only was Robert not alone in his desires and musings, but there were then, and remain today, enough enthusiastic clients who are hoping for the second chance at life. As for Robert, he deanimated in 2011 and was similarly put into the deep freeze. Maybe we'll see him again someday, but I'm just not sure I'll be around to do so myself. Grim and Mild Presents Bedside Manners was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Robin Miniter. Writing for this season was provided by Robin Miniter, with research by Sam Alberti, Taylor Hagerdorn, and Robin Miniter. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. You can learn more about this show, the Grim and Mild team, and all the other podcasts that we make over at GrimAndMild.com. And as always, thanks for listening. It was a scene that any of us could picture today in our mind's eye. Two groups of rivals set against each other by grudges big and small, with a bit of small-town politics thrown in for good measure. To call it a ticking time bomb would be an understatement. On one side were the cowboys, a band of ranchers turned criminals who had plagued the town for years. On the other, four lawmen, and their names are the ones you'd recognize. Virgil, Morgan, and Wyatt Earp, alongside their good friend Doc Holliday. The resulting shootout that day in Tombstone, Arizona, known today as the gunfight at the OK Corral, only lasted 30 seconds. But the mark it left on the popular imagination has held on for nearly 150 years. Why? because Americans have never stopped being fascinated with the Wild West. This July, Grim and Mile Presents turns its gaze westward. Join us for a trek into the unknown, the misunderstood, and the forgotten tales of America's westward expansion. From the early explorers and the indigenous peoples they encountered, to the gunslingers of legend and everything in between, this is your chance to learn just how complicated our move into Western North America really was, and why so many of the assumptions we have about it are dead wrong. So pack your sense of adventure and childhood love of the unexplored, and get ready to make a journey. Grim and Mild Presents The Wild West sets off on Friday, July 7th. Subscribe today on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at grimandmild.com presents.
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart.